Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hello and welcome back to BAPCAST. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. Today I'm going to be speaking with Andy Latal about his paper, Big Surprises, Jackpot Reinforcers in Research and Practice. Andy is a Centennial Professor of Psychology at West Virginia University, where, since 1972, he has taught in the Behavior Analysis Program and mentored 46 doctoral students. Andy's research, covering a variety of topics across the discipline spectrum, has appeared in more than 200 research articles, chapters, and edited volumes. Among the latter is the 1992 special issue of the American Psychologist Memorializing B.F. Skinner. He is a recipient for the Society for the Advancement of Behavior Analysis's Awards for Distinguished Service to Behavior Analysis and for the International Dissemination of Behavior Analysis, as well as Cal Abba's Award for Outstanding Contributions to Behavior Analysis. A past editor of the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior, he recently completed terms as the editor for English language submissions of the Mexican Journal of Behavior Analysis and as the associate editor for translational research of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. He has been a Fulbright Fellow in France and during the 2019-2020 academic year, he was a Fellow of the Japanese Society for Promotion of Science at Osaka Kyoyaku University in Osaka, Japan. Today I'll be speaking with Andy about his paper, Big Surprises, Jackpot Reinforcers in Research and Practice, which really explores what jackpot reinforcers are and if there's research to support their use. As the name of the paper implies, I think you might be surprised by what Andy has to say about jackpot reinforcers. I was truly privileged to sit down and be able to speak with Andy about his work, and I'm really excited to share this episode with you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Andy Latall. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining us on Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, Cody. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very pleased to uh, to be able to talk to you today. We're excited to have you on the show and we're really excited to, to hear about jackpot reinforcers and learn about them. But before we sort of jump into the topic, we always like to hear a little bit about the authors of the paper. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and your current role and, and how all that involves research? Sure. I've been involved in behavior analysis since I was an undergraduate, like many of us, I guess. Only the difference is that I've been around a lot longer than most people, I suppose. Um, I I, uh, 
I was trained at the University of Alabama and I worked, was in the army for a couple of years as a research psychologist. I did a postdoc with George Reynolds. Um, and then I came to West Virginia University in 1972 and I'm still on the faculty. Next wow. year, my 50th year. Wow, congrats. So it's been, uh, it's been a real journey for me. But I have, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to be at West Virginia and have the opportunity to have a very active animal, laborator- animal research laboratory for all those years. Um, <clears throat> and it continues even during COVID. Um, yeah. I, have, I have a number of students who are engaged in projects uh, as we speak. My research is fairly wide ranging. I, um, uh, I've worked in a variety of different areas. I started, uh, I started working in the area of punishment and then I drifted into response independent reinforcement for a while, what other people call non-contingent reinforcement, um, much to my chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> I was just talking uh, about that in a class I was teaching last night actually. The, the terminology. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's if terminology gets established, and even though it's it's not correct, it continues <laughs> rates. Um, but we all know that. Yeah. Um, uh, then I I've I've started working, and I did a lot of work in delay of reinforcement. I, my general interest is in reinforcement mechanisms, reinforcement theory kinds of things. Mm. Say, so if I had to characterize it broadly. Um, Recently, I have been interested in animal social behavior. Mm. Done a number of experiments uh, related to cooperation, mostly um, with both undergraduate and graduate students. It's a it's a little it's a very different area for me, and it's been kind of fun to drift into it. And is that still uh, animal research in a lab, or are you looking more? Uh... Oh, it's 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 cre- it's. It's treating the social response as an operant response, basically. Mm. And it's only instead of having, instead of measuring a response as the as the um, as as the output of one organism, uh, two organisms have to cooperate to produce a reinforcer. So the operant really is defined across organisms, which is, you know, it's not a really a new idea. OBM people talk about this a lot, positive behavioral support people use the similar kinds of things, but um, it sort of struck me that, uh, that you can think about operants in terms of uh, uh, being across organisms because the operant is a flexible unit. And that's one of the remarkable things about it is its flexibility. That's, that's fascinating. I feel like I could, we could do a whole podcast episode on any of the <laughs> different types of research you just described. And I wish we could. But for, for our purposes today, looking at jackpot reinforcers and your paper that sort of describes jackpot reinforcers and some of the background related to applied animal research, but you're in a lot of ways describing how jackpot reinforcers could apply or, or relate to applied behavior analysis. And so yeah. given your, your primary interest, you describe primarily being an animal research, why write a paper like this? Well, um, it, it was one of those things that just sort of evolved. One of the things I was involved in for many, many years was applied animal, um, applied animal work. I, um, I operated a clinic out of a veterinary hospital in Morgantown for many years, an animal behavior clinic that, um, 
we worked with all kinds of behavior problems with uh, people's pets mostly. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of got interested in reading some of the stuff that was going on in the applied animal literature as a result of that. And I ran across jackpot reinforcers in Karen Pryor's book. Hmm. And I, I, you know, I, I never really used them so much in practice, but I, I was it's sort of a, you know, a perfect storm. I was interested in, I was doing the applied animal stuff and reading about these jackpot reinforcers. And I'm, I, had, I had shifted my research in the lab a little bit from delay of reinforcement, which is a parameter of reinforcement. I began to wonder about other parameters of reinforcement. And one, you know, we have frequency, we have delay, and we have magnitude of reinforcement. Right. I was thinking, well, you know, there's really not much stuff on magnitude of reinforcement. There's, there's some stuff out there. Um, so I got interested in that. And when you think about magnitude, um, they're really, you can, magnitude covers a multitude of sins. You can talk about the quality of the reinforcer, for example, um, a sucrose pellet versus a regular pellet. Mm. For that. So they're, they're the same pellet, but they differ in quality. Or you can talk about um, the amount of reinforcement, literally the amount of reinforcement. So you have, in the case of a rat, one pellet versus five pellets. And those two things seem to produce fairly consistent effects. But then when you get to pigeons, which is mostly what I've been working with and what I started working with with magnitude, um, you, you're, you're manipulating the uh, duration of a reinforcer. Hmm. And, and so the food hopper comes up and it can come up for one second or it can come up for 10 seconds. And one of the questions is, you know, does it make a difference? And I go to the literature and I look and I see well, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And the literature is pretty inconsistent on that. There are some experiments where the effects are really, really clean. Hmm. There are other, uh, other experiments where they're just really, really dirty. And so I got to, re I got to thinking about this in the, context of, um, <clears throat> in the context of jackpot reinforcers. And so that's kind of, that's kind of how I came to it. And then I wondered, you know, because I thought about maybe using jackpot reinforcers in practice. And I thought, well, how do you do it? And this was not clear to me. <clears throat> and nothing there. It turns out, of course, there's no literature. But even more basic than that, at one point, Karen, in, in one of her books, Karen said that uh, it didn't matter whether the reinforcers were response dependent or response independent. All right. That was that was a. It was an early statement in, in uh, Please Don't Shoot the Dog. Um, so, you know, that we wondered, well, we know that response dependent, response independent reinforcers make a huge difference in other situations. So why is she saying this? Right. Turns out later on, she, she corrected herself and said it has to be response dependent. Hmm. But um, so anyway, you know, it was an accumulation of stuff like this that, that actually led to uh, an experiment uh, to look at the effects of response dependent and response independent uh, reinforcers, both jackpot and non-jackpot. And it was a master's thesis that one of my uh, graduate students, uh, Toshi Kuroda did, uh, I don't know, some time back, I don't know exactly when. And um, so Toshi did this experiment and he was so careful and it was such a good experiment. You know, it was really tight design. It was aesthetically pleasing. Huh. And we got Zippo. 
Wow. Absolutely Zippo. So we thought, well, that's really curious. So to make a long story short, it set us on a path and we started asking if asking question, other questions about the the nature of um, the nature of these jackpot reinforcers, and we ended up doing about five experiments over the course of several years. I would recruit an undergraduate for an honors thesis, and he'd be looking or she'd be looking for a project, and I'd say, "Well, how about we do something with jackpot reinforcers?" And it, you know, we we tried any number of things, and nothing seemed to work. Hmm. Uh, I mean, we some we got maybe small effects sometimes, but we got nothing very consistent. And so we decided, well, after, you know, this, it was probably seven or eight years from the first experiment to the time we published the thing because we took our time and explored a lot of different variables. And then we both, we all just were too busy to deal with it. But we finally got it together and, and published the thing in JAB. And um, <clears throat> one of the reviewers, Doug uh, Elif at, in uh, New Zealand, uh, actually suggested, you know, you, you ought to try to you ought to try to generalize this thing, make, write something for a, for a general audience. And so I thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. So I took the um, I took the material and added a lot of other things to it that I'd been reading since since those studies were done and came up with this uh, um, big surprise paper. So oh, that's, that's, how it, that's how it came about. That's fascinating and, and much appreciated. And I, and I love your sort of aim within the paper to uh, help translate some of this information to the applied setting. And I think your opening sentence uh, of your paper, and I, I won't go through the trouble of reading it, but it gets at the idea of you would, you would assume that in, in applied settings, when you're working with a client on a task that's difficult for them to complete or uh, you're looking for a specific response and you've worked on it, when they finally get it, you're, you're likely to have sort of a super animated response to them with the wows, great job, or maybe you know increased uh, inflection of your voice or something like that. And when I read that sentence, I was instantly hooked because I knew that I was certainly <laughs> guilty of that yeah. myself. And so I was, okay, yeah. well, uh, beginning to explore, is this, is what I'm doing, you know, useful? Could it potentially have downsides and everything like that? And, and exploring that within your paper. And so really, really fascinating stuff there. Well, I was, yeah. And I, I the other example that I give in the introduction is, is in the basic laboratory. We do the same thing in the basic laboratory. If we're shaping, if we're shaping a response and there's a particularly good uh, approximation, man, that hopper comes up, <laughs> up for five minutes sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Good pigeon, good pigeon. <laughs> we get just as excited about it as people do in, in applied settings when, when, an, when an approximation is really nice. But, you know, I, I mean, it is, it, it is a, I don't want to, I, it's a natural kind of response in yeah. this situation. You know, you're working and you're working and you get something and you're excited and you want the, you want it to manifest again. So you just try to reinforce it really strongly. Um, but the question is whether or not it really makes a difference. Could you have accomplished the same thing just by saying click, you know, and be done with it? All right. 
but and and that was the question that was really the question because it it's one of those concepts that makes intuitive sense but how do you demonstrate it and 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 then one, and and is it real <clears throat> and right. i don't you know one of the problems with the research with all the research that we did on this thing in the jab paper is every single result is negative wow and <clears throat> You know, I, I don't, it's difficult with negative results because they can mean one of, at least one of two things. They can mean either that there's no effect right, or that there's an effect and you just haven't been clever enough to figure out how to show it. Right. So we, we worried a little bit about that and we don't, we, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to appear overly negative, so to speak, about the concept. Hmm. The purpose of the, of both of the papers and particularly the, um, the one in, in BA in practice was um, was to sort of introduce the concept and get people thinking about it. Right, and, and completely fascinating. Now, we've talked about some of the, we've talked about jackpot reinforcers, albeit indirectly, and you talk about really three elements of what it required within jackpot reinforcers. Do you want to provide the listeners sort of a, a working definition for this conversation of what a jackpot reinforcer is? A, a jackpot reinforcer, there are three parts to it, as you, as you mentioned. Um, the reinforcer has to be dependent on a response. It has to be larger than normal. Hmm. It has to be a surprise. And both, all three of those, except, well, the, the dependent independent is pretty clear. Uh, but the problem with that one was that at as I said earlier, I think Karen at different Karen Pryor at different times had defined it in different ways. And finally, finally, in a 2006 paper, some 20 years after the book had been published, um, clarified that it, it did need to be response dependent. So think, is that, is there consensus officially then on uh, the jackpot reinforcer needing to be response dependent? Well, yeah, mostly. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of still on a continuum. There's still a people, people generally will, will uh, tout the party line, hmm. say, yeah, it has to be response dependent. But then if you look at what they're, what people are actually doing and the way that they use it in some of these uh, websites on animal, um, animal behavior management, um, it's a little unclear. Or not whether or not there is there is a consensus a, a verbal consensus but in actual practice sometimes there's a little bit of slippage it seems it seemed um, like maybe one of the examples you provided if i'm recalling correctly is giving when they were talking about training i can't remember what species but giving i think it was maybe whales or dolphins two large fishes or fish at the beginning of their session and calling that a jackpot reinforcer. Is that yeah, and that? and there's yeah, that's right. And there was there was another one where they gave it at the end of the session and said the same kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So it you know, I don't know how you <clears throat> those well, those seem to fit more into a reinstatement kind of paradigm where interesting you you deliver a reinforcer after a long period of non-reinforcement and you deliver it independently of responding in it. It, it facilitates the responding in the short term. Wow. Transient increase. Usually it's in the laboratory that's done in extinction, but you can see if it were delivered in a, 
um, in, in, in a situation where you have a, lot, a very lean reinforcement schedule, for example, it might have some facilitatory, uh, short-term facilitatory effect. Facilitatory wow. effect. Yeah. Um, and the larger than normal thing, uh, you know, that's the question there is how much, how, how big is big? Right, right. And not only that, but the same kinds of questions that came up when I started the stuff on magnitude of reinforcement. And we got to thinking about, you know, you can do magnitude of reinforcement in different ways. You can de deliver a different quality reinforcer. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of talk in the animal literature about that, you know, instead of giving them um, a kibble bit, um, you give them a, a cube of steak or something. Wow. So there's a, there's this qualitative dimension to the reinforcer. And then there's, there's also, um, I see a lot of people will, you know, when they're working with their pet, they, and the pet does something really great. They'll, they'll, they're dealing with individual kibbles and they'll throw out one after another, you know, so there'll be several in a row. And, and it's not clear whether that's the same thing as giving them all at the same time. Mm. You know, um, I don't know if it makes any, I mean, it's an empirical question, really. Right. There's no answer to it. Um, it. It feels like there's a lot of sort of empirical questions within this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We did another experiment. We did a little experiment with pigeons where we compared, um, delivering six one-second reinforcers and one six-second reinforcer yeah. to see if that would, if there was any difference. You know, it's like getting six pennies versus, an, uh, um, or six pennies versus a nickel and a penny. I, or should be five reinforcers, I guess, and, 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 and five-second reinforcer. But, you know, the, the point is that uh, if you break the reinforcers up, do they have the same effect as a, as, as a single reinforcer that's longer? And the evidence that we have based on that experiment is that it doesn't make much difference. It feels like the story of, of this topic almost to an extent, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing about, you know, delivering reinforcers in segments is that, or, or in duration, like with the pigeons, um, there's, there's two aspects to a reinforcer with a pigeon. Uh, it pecks the key and the hopper comes up. Right. And then it, it either stays up for a long time or a short time. But at the onset, if you will, the pigeon doesn't know that. Mm. It's, you know, there, there, I, there's a distinct change in the environment when it makes a response. And I, I wonder if some of the variability in, in the magnitude experiments generally is not because of this, that the, the more important feature of the reinforcer is its arrival hmm. because it's not until sometimes later that, that the animal actually comes in, the behavior comes in contact with the duration aspect of it. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And so we've been, we've tried to do a couple of experiments with that, not with much success. I have to, I have to say at this point, but you know, you wonder about whether or not you could do something like, um, if, if you were able to signal at the onset of the reinforcer, whether it's a long reinforcer or a short reinforcer, mm. if that would a bigger difference than if, if it were just always onset and then it stays up for a certain period of time or a longer period of time and goes off. Right, because if it's discriminated, 
it the organism will immediately come into contact with what has been associated with a larger or exactly. longer duration or shorter duration yeah. reinforcer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true, maybe true of jackpot reinforcers. You know, it, it, if they, the, the animal gets the first fish and there's maybe more fish coming after that, but it's that first fish that's a really important fish. And the others probably may have a diminishing effect. There's an old experiment by, um, oh, I can't remember, Rick Shaw, and um, I can't remember the other author, but um, Shaw and Gil, I'm not sure. It's a 1982, maybe, um, where he, he he showed something like that. He had this procedure where he showed, basically showed that the first reinforcer has the biggest impact. And then if you follow it with subsequent reinforcers after longer and longer delays, they, they have a diminishing effect on the response. But I thought that was, a, I always liked that experiment and I thought it was a useful, a useful way of thinking about this whole problem of um, parsing out the onset versus the duration of a reinforcer, the jackpotness, if you will, of the reinforcer. All right. So <laughs> you and so you got the it's got to be response dependent. We've got to figure out the size situation, which is which is complicated to figure mm -hmm. out. And then on top of that, you also have the predictability piece yeah, of predictability the predictability surprise thing. And um, I don't know how to I don't know really how to operationalize that, um, except as frequency, you know, and then that's what, that's what Karen and other people have said about it, that it, it should be a surprise. And by surprise, I take that to mean that it should be a rare event, but, and maybe that was one of, we, in some of our experiments, we didn't know how to operationalize it. And so we you know, like whenever you're doing it, you're starting in a research area, you, you guess. All right. We made some guesses and different guesses and different experiments in an attempt to kind of uh, uh, feel out where that, where that might fall. Um, in, in the surprise or the infrequency, is that something that I suppose isn't better explained via just the concept of intermittent reinforcement? Like how how are those, or is it intermittent reinforcement? I guess it's just, how are, how are those two terms related? Well, I think it is. I, I, probability or the frequency of, the, of, the, of occurrence of a reinforcer is, uh, is just one parameter of reinforcement. Yeah. What makes the, the um, jackpot reinforcers interesting is that they're not only infrequent, but they're fairly large. Yeah. Which raises another interesting question, you know, which is the relation between... Um, the number of reinforcers and the size of the reinforcers. For example, if you have a VI, if you, if you want to deliver 180 seconds worth of food in a session, you can do, deliver 63 second reinforcers on a VI, say a VI one minute schedule, or you could deliver fewer of those reinforcers and make them 10 seconds long. So you'd only deliver maybe um, uh, 18 of them yeah. over the course of the hour. And do you get different effects with those? And we, we tried some of that and we didn't find, we found that generally um, the smaller, the more frequent smaller reinforcers had a bigger effect than the 
the less frequent but larger reinforcers. Funny thing about this conversation is this is really just to begin to understand jackpot reinforcers, much less their their effects on behavior, which is another section of your paper. But when defining jackpot reinforcers, your paper really outlines these three parameters and the conceptual and perhaps research issues related to those. And then you go on to talk about if we can kind of get potentially past some of those definitional issues to look at how these jackpot reinforcers would potentially affect behavior. So what were you seeing there in terms of, of research? You mean in terms of application? Yeah, in application. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I think that's, you know, I, I have this funny view of, of translation research, translational research. Um, I, I think it's an undue burden and a little mm -hmm. fair to put the burden of translation on the basic researcher who's really interested in basic behavioral processes, mainly, uh, mainly because there are, I can, I can, I can make some guesses about things that might, that, that, you know, where, where they might have some application and I'm happy to do that. But I often feel like that it, um, the, the, the basic researcher often doesn't have the appropriate background to really understand how these things might be applied. I might say that it would be applied this way, mm. but I might be missing a very important dimension um, that I'd never even thought about because I'd never come in contact with that particular contingency in an applied setting. And so I think it's very likely that basic researchers miss things. Now, I think it's appropriate for us to comment on what we see is, as, as potential places where this might, um, this might play out. But I don't think that the applied practitioner should take it as gospel that this is where, where it should be because they have far more experience with these kinds of situations and probably can see applications and implications that are beyond the basic researcher's ability and probably interest too. So I, I you know, it's a it's a tightrope in terms of, of where to go with uh, where to go with these things. And the point of the paper was to maybe to try to attract some people to start thinking about this and say, you know, here's here's a phenomenon. We don't have much evidence for it, but conceptually, it makes so much sense that this, uh, you know, like the two examples that we were talking about earlier. That, yeah. Oh, you go, you, you do this all the time, but does it really make a difference? And if it, you know, if you're doing things that don't make a difference, then you're not being very either behavior analytic about it or scientific about it. All right. And you're just, you know, you're just pulling stuff out of the air and using it. Uh, and I think that's, I hate to say it, but I think that's what's happened with, with the jackpot reinforcers in applied settings is that there's this, um, this cult that's built up around around their use, um, but there's not much there's not much scientific evidence, experimental evidence to suggest that they do or don't work. And I think we need that evidence; otherwise, we're wasting our time and a large number of reinforcers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's process. why, yeah, and that's why I think this paper is fascinating because 
it's something that not only conceptually makes sense in terms of the use of jackpot reinforcers, but it's almost also an intuitive thing, right? When, when my, as you were saying, even in uh, lab work, but also doing stuff in an applied setting, when my client does something I wanted to see, I'm getting excited about that. And therefore probably going to be a little bit more lavish in terms of delivering reinforcers. So it, it both is something that, you would think makes sense that jackpot reinforces would potentially affect behavior. It's yeah. something that you probably intuitively are driven to do. And at the same time, as you're pointing out, there's not really much uh, research evidence supporting its use. And so it, it creates an interesting uh, issue, I think. Yeah, and I, I would really welcome uh, uh, welcome some input from applied people in terms of where where they see these where where do they see instances of something like this, and does do these instances constitute evidence for the efficacy of these jackpot reinforcers, or are they is it all is it is it as anecdotal as it is in the uh, in the animal behavior literature? Hmm. Well, uh, the sort of particular issues that you outlined in your paper and the parameters of jackpot reinforcers, I feel like if anybody is, is working on a dissertation or wanting to create a dissertation, you're not quite sure where you want to go with it. I think pull up this paper, you've got a lot of really, really interesting questions sort of embedded throughout. It'd be a great research line for anyone. Yeah. Plus it's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, uh, it, 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 um, it was just so much fun to think about this problem and how we might, uh, might solve it. And I think my students learned so much about, about the inductive method from uh, just from discussions that we would have, because we'd sit down and we'd say, okay, we tried this and we tried that. What else can we do? Yeah. But we would then move off in, in another direction and try something else. And then they would come up with ideas and I would come up with ideas and we'd sort through them and decide on the ones that were the most, the most reasonable to pursue. But that's how science should be. Right. I mean, that's, that's the, that's, for me, it's the essence of, of scientific exploration and discovery. Yeah. And the, the jackpot paper uh, just gave us all a great opportunity to practice some of that. Yeah, it was fa it was fascinating the way that the problems were constructed for the practitioners reading this paper who are potentially utilizing jackpot reinforcers. What would you what would you encourage them to think about or consider in terms of their own use right now? Well, I, I think the first thing is is how are they using them? Hmm. You know, what what you say you're using a jackpot reinforcer? What are you doing? And once you figure out what you're doing. And if you think you've got a jackpot reinforcer in there, then, then the thing to do is to start manipulating some variable. Um, if, you, if you've got, you know, if you've got a big reinforcer here and a bunch of little reinforcers running alongside it, what happens if you take out the big reinforcer? Does it make any difference? Um, what happens if you add another big reinforcer in there? Does that make any difference? Um, what happens if you if you deliver one of them dependent on a response and one of them independently responding? I know what will happen there. That's that's not really a very interesting question. I don't think actually. Um, <clears throat> what happens if you if 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 you record how often you're using these things, and 
you don't just eliminate them, but you just reduce their frequency. Does that, does that have a positive? It should have a positive effect according to the, the quote theory yeah. of, of jackpot reinforcers because the, the more infrequent they are, the more potent their effect, which raises another question, which is where do you see the effect? You know, do you see, it's not clear from the literature where you're supposed to see these effects. Do you see them in the, this, is the performance somehow, in, as you said, in a molar sense, more, uh, more, more better <laughs> proved uh, or improved um, or the f- effects, very local effects. You give a, a jackpot reinforcer and you get a big, a big burst in responding, but it kind of dribbles off after a while. We looked for both and we didn't, because again, the, the way we were supposed to measure this thing was not clear. We used response rate as our measure. We used preference as our measure. Yeah. And we didn't see much with either one. Maybe the closest we came to finding a difference was with preference. Um, and that may have to do with just, you know, that is just a magnitude effect. It may not be a jackpot reinforcer effect as such. You would have to manipulate something like the surprise element to see whether or not they're really preferring the jackpot reinforcer over another reinforcer. And I don't need to have to, there's a lot of scientific questions about equating the the amount of reinforcement and this sort of thing to see whether or not it's the surprise element that's the critical variable. But but they're all things that could be worked out. And uh, this is, I see this as sort of a starting point for, um, for other things that people might investigate in this line. It really feels like you're opening up Pandora's box to some extent of all these really, really interesting questions. So again, the thing that many people are practicing and not thinking twice about. And in the paper, you talk about, you know, one of the reasons it's important to really think about the actual utility or effectiveness of jackpot reinforcers if you're using them is there can be some, I don't know if you would call them side effects, but some potentially unwanted effects of jackpot reinforcers, you know, say, uh, sooner satiation of, on the reinforcer could potentially uh, be one of those effects. Are there other downsides of jackpot reinforcers? Well, yeah, I think the biggest downside is that um, you're, you're using, the biggest potential downside is you're, you're doing something that's making no difference. Right. And I think that's, that raises some potential ethical questions as to whether or not you should be doing it if you don't know what effects it, it has. Reinforcers, you know, it may not be that big a deal, but I think as a general principle, it's important to remember that we're basing our whole science and our whole practice on a science that uh, is based on empirical evidence for things. Now, it doesn't mean that, that's a tough question because you don't, if you don't know whether something has an effect or not, you need to find out. And the only way to find out is to put it into practice and see. Um, but I think that it's important to, to put it in practice in a research context so that you are asking the question as to whether or not these things do make a difference. And if you're not finding consistent effects, then you probably shouldn't be doing it, just like with any treatment. All um, right. Why have so, extra components that aren't yeah, producing it's, any it's, effect? Yeah, 
it's wasting valuable time that could be better used. Right. Both in, in wasting valuable scientific information and knowledge that could be better used uh, on the part of the practitioner. Uh, if, if they were, you know, if they'd, instead of, instead of using something that's not working, they should, or that doesn't have a, have a, an effect and they're looking to use it to get an effect, then they should move on and try something else that's more efficacious. But the only way to know that is for somebody to do the research. And we've kind of, uh, uh, we've kind of made the first shot here with, uh, with these two papers. And we hope that, uh, we hope that people will follow up on it or be interested enough in it. I was very so pleased to have this opportunity to talk to you about this for that reason, because I think it's a fascinating problem and I think it does have potential, but whether it really is um, a useful procedure or not is for all of us to decide yeah. as, as a community of scientists and practitioners. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And again, I think perhaps the reason I was so fascinated when reading it is that juxtaposition of something that I've sort of taken for granted and, and oftentimes done, not even again, intentionally, just with my excitement, providing more reinforcement, et cetera. And then to think about all of the potential conceptual issues of trying to identify what that actually does. And if it has a positive effect, it, it, it's very interesting. And so for one of the things you're hoping to do with, with this paper is to sort of bring about more research on the topic. And I'm you know, hopeful that maybe you and your lab are doing some research, but you know, there's probably two different paths that can be going on simultaneously, some with animal Absolutely. and some with, with human. Are there particular questions that you're working on or you think people should be working on on, on either or both tracks? Um, I'm not doing anything with it at the moment. I've, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've, my lab has kind of moved over. And so I do have one, it's moved over in the social right, right. behavior thing. Um, I do have one student that's doing a magnitude of reinforcement experiment, um, but it's not on jackpot reinforcers. Um, I'm still, yeah, I think that there's, in terms of the basic research, I think there's a lot to do just with magnitude of reinforcement and, and jackpot reinforcers are part of that. Um, I think that yeah, the basic question is whether or not people can find a procedure in the laboratory or in an applied setting that will produce a reliable difference with a jackpot. Mm. When a jackpot is when a jackpot reinforcer is used versus when it's not when it's not used, and I you know that's that seems to me to be the basic question. And of course, that there's many questions embedded in that, like what is a jackpot reinforcer? So we've, we've offered some definitions. It probably would behoove people to move beyond what we did in terms of defining it the ways that we've defined it and think, think about the basic concept of a, of a jackpot reinforcer and maybe, maybe come up with some different dimensions to the thing that, that we hadn't thought of and we hadn't considered when we, uh, when we were doing our work. So one of the first tasks, in addition to defining it, as you described, is it sounds like demonstrating it in a, in a controlled yeah. sense. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's, I mean, you've got to define it in some, you got to operationalize it so that you can then look at whether or not it has an effect. Right. Um, 
and it has to, it should have, I think, those three dimensions that we talked about, the dependency, um, the, the size, and the, and the, the whatever the element, the, and the infrequency. Right. That's uh, those three core components. Yeah. For people who are interested in this topic, they should obviously read the article in, in Behavior Analysis and Practice. You referenced earlier another paper you have published in, in JAB on the topic. Are there other papers or things that people should check out if they're interested in jackpot reinforcers? Um, yeah, there's the uh, there's a whole literature on incentive, uh, incentive reinforcement and I forget how it's labeled incentive shifts in reinforcement. Okay. So, you know, they're, they're usually, they're, they're group designed experiments. I referenced the paper, um, by, I think it's by Flaherty in the, um, in the article uh, that, that seems to be related in a, in a way. They, they, you have two groups of rats. One's getting a large reinforcer and one's getting a small reinforcer. And the, um, and, 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 so they're going along and one has high rates and one has low rates. So the high rate guys up here and the low rate guys down here, the group is down here. And then at some point you shift them all to the small reinforcer. So the, um, the group that's getting the small reinforcer continues to get that reinforcer. The large, the, the large group now gets the small reinforcer. Hmm. The large group's responses drop below the level of the small reinforcer group that's been constant throughout. Wow. The same thing going the other way. If you have a, a large reinforcer and a small reinforcer, and now you shift them, you shift the small group to the large reinforcer, you'd think that they would stay at the same level as the large reinforcer, but they go over above it. Above it, wow. Above it. And so it seems that it's maybe, a, it maybe the effect, it's not exactly a jackpot effect, Right. It's a it's an incentive shift. It's called, <clears throat> but it seems that it's kind of related to a jackpot reinforcer, and that you get a a bigger than normal effect when you give a large reinforcer after they've had a bunch of small reinforcers. And I think that's that's probably the one that the, the research that comes the closest to um, to being like the jackpot reinforcer situation. So that'd be something that if, if the listeners are interested in, they can check out. Is there any other sort of important points about jackpot, jackpot reinforcers or uh, sort of related topics that you think the, the listeners should be aware of or check out? Um, no, not really. I, I, uh, uh, there's, there's maybe, you know, just the, 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 the research on reinforcer magnitude hmm. is certainly worth looking at. There's a nice review paper. Um, I'll have to send you the name of the paper. Uh, it was uh, done in the mid 1980s, um, and I'm blocking on the on the author's names right now. Yeah, if you send it to me, we can link to it in the show. It's notes a site bulletin paper, and it is in. It's referenced in the article. Okay. It's kind of old. But it, it summarizes all the problems of magnitude of reinforcement as a variable. And it, it certainly predates all the stuff on, uh, on jackpot reinforcers. But I think in terms of just providing an introduction to some of the problems in studying magnitude of reinforcement, that that's a good, uh, that's a good starting point. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your work on, on this paper and in the field, of course. But 
for the purposes of this podcast, especially on this paper. It's, it's extremely, extremely interesting. I think very applicable to a, applied work, even though it's sort of written primarily from the sense of animal applied research and, and the research behind that. But these are things, these are yeah. practices that every applied behavior analyst or many beha- applied behavior analysts are doing. And so I think it's, it's a really interesting topic. There's a lot of research that's needed. And so as we kind of discussed earlier, if you're looking for some research questions, you could build a career just off of addressing some of the questions in this paper alone, I think. Sometimes it's useful to, to have a label for things that you're doing. Because it, takes you in, it takes you in directions that you might not otherwise have gone. And as you said, we all do this from time to time. And now we have kind of a framework for thinking about it and whether or not, uh, whether or not the things that we're doing are making an impact. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's extremely interesting. So Andy, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, we hope to have you on the show again in the future. Thank you, Cody. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. I really enjoyed the interview and the opportunity to maybe excite some people about, uh, about jackpot reinforcers. Before you take off, remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest bat papers that we should review on the show. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for help creating this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice of the Journal. Thank you to ABAI, who publishes Behavior Analysis and Practice and supports this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producer, Elizabeth Narvaez, and my production assistants, Jesse Perrin, Taylor Rainho, and Tatiana Pilar. Thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>